Welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. This is the podcast where we explore the people and stories that make up the tech and venture ecosystem. Don't forget to subscribe, like, rate, and share the podcast because it really helps us get the word out to more people who are curious about understanding even more about the world of venture capital. This season of Nothing Ventured is sponsored by Odin. Odin helps angels, VCs, and founders to raise and deploy capital seamlessly. You can structure your SPVs and now run your funds, handle capital calls, portfolio management more smoothly and easily in one place. Founders use Odin to raise their entire round in a few clicks by simply sending investors a link and receiving investments immediately. Odin works with over 5,000 investors and over 150 emerging fund managers and angel syndicates globally. Head to joinodin.com to learn more. That's J-O-I-N-O-D-I-N.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Ari Shah. Today, I was super excited to have in the studio with me, Harry Slagle and Lucy Adams. Harry and Lucy are the co-founders of Martiz, a business on a mission to make convenience food better globally by applying AI to the frontiers of retail technology. Since their inception last year, Martis have built a living lab network of 10 smart retail units across London. Using these IoT-enabled stores, they're developing an AI demand forecasting product using the data to train their convenience food solution. Prior to building Martis, Harry co-founded Plateaway, a restaurant meal kit marketplace, which ultimately exited to get Fudo, and subsequently worked with both Founders Factory and Nesta as an entrepreneur in residence, whilst Lucy has a deep background in food and food research and public policy. Then the commercial team at fast gross delivery uh, startup Wheezy, and as a founder in residence at Zinc. On today's episode, we talked about launching a business during lockdown and doing everything possible before deciding it was time to exit, becoming a co-founder off the back of a LinkedIn post, pivoting to demand forecasting in the food space to ensure that there's a balance of availability whilst minimizing waste, and how working with accelerators set themselves up for success. Let's get straight into it. Harry, Lucy, great to have you in the studio with me. Um, as uh, our, our audience will know, we've done a bit of a shift around, so we're, we're switching out the way we kind of do our primer episodes. So it's going to be a bit of a quick fire, uh, and I'll kind of go between uh, the two of you. But um, start with, what was your first job? I used to work in my local pub serving food and drinks, so very on brand. Amazing. Um, my dad had a push chair baby products business, and I helped push boxes through a warehouse. I thought you were going to say you pushed babies. <laughs> no, not pushed babies. No, yeah, pushed boxes. But I also helped him. Um, we used to do these uh, 3D photos of like watching. So you could actually see the push chairs on a, on a website. And it sounds really simple now, but 15 years ago, it's quite innovative. Excellent. And what did you do before you got into the tech inventory ecosystem? Uh, so my first job out of university was working in public policy advisory. So I was working with um, government organizations like the Food Standards Agency um, and European organizations as well. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I started my uh, career at Sky Up in Leeds. So I helped do um, a lot of their products and UX um, and then I went into management consultancy, working on a number of different um, projects, high profile projects for the uh, public sector, digital transformation projects. Okay, and what triggered your move into founding Martis? Yeah, so well, before Martis, I had another business called Plate Away um, and um, always wanted to do my own business um, and thought of the idea of the start of COVID and, and launched that. Um, and then, yeah, now into Martis. So. Uh, I 
didn't really know what I wanted to do out of university, um, dabbled in consulting and then by chance was exposed to the startup world and fell in love. Um, I've always been passionate about food and health and the fact that people should eat better food that also tastes great. Um, so I, yeah, I've been sort of dabbling in, in startups for the last two or three years. Um, was at the rapid grocery company Wheezy um, in their early days and their growth days and the days in which they sold to get it, as everyone did. Um, I then, um, yeah, was on an accelerated program before this and then met Harry and thought, actually, this is this is what I want to do. So I came on board in, in June. And what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't in venture? Oh, good question. Um, probably still in management consultancy. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably working on some, I was working on some cool projects, um, but none of them were my own baby, so um well my mum's always thought I'd be a great chef um so I'd like to think that I might have gone down perhaps the slightly less um tech enabled venture funded startup world regardless um so yeah probably founding my own restaurant business um cooking great food okay and let's talk about Marty's quickly what's a quick pitch what are you solving who are your customers and what's your traction yeah we're looking um to help fresh food businesses and find the perfect balance between availability and waste. Um, if you order too much stock in terms of your inventory, um, you're gonna have loads of waste. Um, if you don't order enough, you can have empty shelves. Um, so yeah, we're looking to solve that problem through an AI forecasting tool, um, which we've already having shown really impressive signs on our own um, store network, um, which we can talk about as well. Excellent. Um, who are three people that you would love to have, have as investors in the business or on the board? Yeah, so we've already got one really cool guy, Mark Lilly, the founder of Avocado. So he's already an investor um, and a design partner of ours um, in the business. Um, we'd also like to have uh, Julian Metcalf would be great. He's the founder of uh, Pratt and it. So I've actually spoken to him at the start of this journey. So it would be good um, if he came on board at some point. Um, and um, Stephen Bartlett, um, <laughs> I think I think he'll be great. I've been um, I actually met him um, at a Vodafone event a few years ago. Um, but yeah, always love what he does. So I think it'd be quite cool. Amazing. Any Anyone else you'd add? Yeah, I think mine might be it's probably similar, but slightly different. Uh, I'm a big fan of Henry Dumbleby, coming from a more of a sort of food systems research background. Um, I think what we're doing is very in line with the national food strategy, and I think that he'd be a great addition to that team. Um, also, Obi Felton, who's a lesser known um, compared to <laughs> compared to Henry Dumbleby, but she, um, she was head of getting moonshots ready for contact with the public world at X. Um, she came in and did a, a chat when I was at university and really inspired me to get into tech. Uh, amazing female founder and um, investor. I think she'd be a great addition to our board. Excellent. And final question, pizza or pasta? Pasta for me. Got to have parmesan. I had pasta for lunch, so I think I have to say pasta too. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, we're going to get into some detail on the business and some of your backgrounds during the main podcast uh, coming up. So uh, thank you so much in the meantime. Great. Thanks for having cool. us. Thanks. Lucy, Harry, great to have you in the studio with me. Um, so let's dive straight in. Harry, you built Playtoway, and then after deciding that you'd taken the business as far as it could go, you exited to get Fudo, uh, but then pretty quickly jumped into founding Martis. I think it was less than a year. Um, I'd love for you to share your journey at Playtoway with our listeners. And in light of the current market, I have no doubt that many founders are struggling with how they can take their businesses forward and may well be facing the sort of challenges that you face to grow further. What advice would you would you give to them? Yeah, so Playtoway was a hell of a journey. Uh, so we started in the first, the first lockdown. 
in April 20, 2020. Um, and when everyone was stuck at home, um, you couldn't even get any Ocado or Tesco's online. And all restaurants were, were putting their ingredients in a box um, and send it through the post. Um, so we latched onto a bit of an opportunity where we built a website and could launch um, and help all restaurants in London launch nationwide. We secured a nationwide career contract, scaled to uh, over a million pound revenue in the first six months, Amazing. signed up loads of different restaurants, was mental. Um, then we raised a VC round, grew even more. Um, and then it was pretty much a roller coaster throughout that whole journey um, in kind of demand from the consumer side, but also from, from the restaurant side as well. When people want to go back to the restaurants, there was less of a need for it. But then they found out when lockdown kind of was over and, and people went back, people were scared to go out, so they still need to do it. So it was a massive, massive journey. Um, and ultimately, I, I call it a semi-exit. Um, we we got to the point where we managed to sell our assets. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, it still actually lives on. You said it went to get Fudo. Um, and just, yeah, learned loads. I think um, for what we try to do is we try to build a marketplace for a brand new market. Almost if you can imagine um, building delivery just as takeaways started, we were doing it for restaurant milk kits. So um, yeah, it was very, very quite hard to do. And, and I and I wonder, like, had had COVID not had have had COVID COVID not have happened, do you think you'd have? Do you think it would have been as quickly scaled as it was, or do you think that that actually, you know, do you think that was what kind of produced? I think everyone stuck at home. I think accelerated the yeah. growth. But you've got existing businesses like HelloFresh and Gusto, which weren't they were milk kits, but they weren't restaurant milk kits. Restaurants milk kits were more of a niche. Yep. speciality from that regard obviously covid has grown those businesses like for example let's take pasta evangelist right they mm. started right at the start they were specific in pasta as a milk kit and they just grew exponentially so it was a boost it was a boost it boosted us um but yeah mass massive learnings throughout that whole process of how to do everything from the startup the good the bad the ugly yeah um and um yeah, it was a fantastic experience. And so for founders today who, you know, were in, in, in the midst of probably, well, it's actually a normalization, I guess, of, 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 of VC. We had a lot of, you know, frenetic energy over the last three, four, five years. Um, but there are no doubt lots of founders out there, possibly some not even necessarily in the mindset that actually they've got to change what they do or they've got to think about their business differently. But, you know, we certainly see lots of businesses that are coming up to the edge of their runway thinking that they're going to be able to raise again in the same sort of market uh, environment as, as as they saw in 21, 22. Mm. Uh, maybe not thinking about, well, actually, do I need to pivot? Do I need to actually rationalize the business? Do I need to actually shut down the business, right? Like, so what, what I, I guess what I'm, what, what I'm asking almost is, like, at what point were you like, actually, we've taken it as far? And how, how did you come to that decision, I guess? Don't give up too early. Like, it took us a while to end up having to say, okay, we need to sell our assets right um ultimately we raised our vc round december 21 mm -hmm. then we who, who was the investor there so hatch ventures yeah um, okay. so they were fantastic they, they were really supportive throughout the whole pro process initially when we got the money in and then when we had to sell our assets so that i wouldn't i rate them very highly um and we had a number of angels um invested in them as well as well as a crowd uh, crowd fund initial with cedars um so we, we we closed that round yeah december 21 and then um, scaled the business a bit more. We diversified into food gifts when mm -hmm. we kind of realized that restaurant milk kits might not be as as much of a big demand. There was still quite a good demand. So we lost, just launched a 
subscription service as well. We tried different things. Like the last thing we tried was actually launching kits with some high influencers, and we actually bought some of the um, the production of the mill kits in house, which was a whole another ball game that initially, obviously, we stayed out of because we were like asset, but then we went into it in the end, which was a good learning, but at the same time showed how much of a massive pain that was. Yeah. Um, and then we found a buyer that made sense, and and that was a, a deal that was going on in the background um, for a couple of months, still trying to try loads of different initiatives, um, and the technology and the IP and that sold to them, and and it's um, in some capacity still going today. So yeah, I suppose my advice to founders is don't give up. Look at the different opportunities, speak to your customers more, but then ultimately, um, if you if you can't end up raising another round, look for different plans of. of Someone, can someone is there a good market fit for someone to buy the product mm. um that could use it in a different way so yeah we managed to do that um, and we managed to do it in a way that um was good for all the investors that invested through um seis and eis yep. as well um so i think um look it, it, even though it didn't it wasn't as big as it was meant to be I think um, for me, it was a massive learning curve and um, I ended on a good note. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're going to talk about kind of what came after that as well. And Lucy, presumably you didn't know Harry during those those days, right? So, um, you know, we've all heard about the metrics around how many ventures fall over because of founders falling out like a, a lot, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Uh, and all that that entails around morale, the cap table, investor confidence, everything else. So I'd love to actually understand what your co-founding journey was with Harry. Uh, you know, the journey that you went on and how you both knew that A, this was a business that you, you wanted to build, that needed to be built, I guess. And B, it was a business that you both felt that you wanted to build, right? Because often, you know, the problem is, uh, you know, Harry may have had a vision to to essentially build a number of stores. You may have had the vision to to, to do the analytics part. But how did you how did you how did you know that you were both looking to go on this journey together and head in the same direction, I guess? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think um, our founding story is probably quite unusual. So I actually didn't know Harry at all. Um, and I saw a job posting for a co-founder that oh, wow. Harry did on LinkedIn and thought that sounds really up my street. And I think for me, the reason why I believed that it was up my street and was confident in that from, from quite early on in terms of the concept was that I'd spent six months prior to that doing the Zinc Accelerator mm. Program. So I'd essentially spent quite a long time soul searching about I knew I wanted to start a food business. I knew I was passionate about improving the, the face of, of food in the UK and improving from, from a health angle as well as a taste perspective. And um, I was sort of looking for the right vehicle to do that within. Um, and yeah, I had a lot of ideas about what I thought would work and what didn't. And actually the, the idea of working with smart fridges as well as the idea of working in a forecasting capacity had been floated through my my ideation process. And, and they, they kind of, I'd never sort of dismissed them as ideas. So when, when I heard that it, this had some gravity behind it um, and, and saw what kind of Harry was looking for, that for me was a really good signal. Obviously the main thing um, with founding any business is the co-founder. And um, equally having done the zinc process, I had a really good sense of what I was looking for in a co-founder because I'd spent a lot of time essentially speed dating yep. um, lots of other potential co-founders. And I think one of my huge take homes from that was just um, realizing that you don't want to found with somebody who is the same as you in terms of the way that they work, the, the things that they're good at, but you do want to find somebody who's got aligned values. And I think for us, like that couldn't be more true. Mm -hmm. um, so we we have a really good division of labor, which is 
essential when you're so early on you do not want to be fighting over jobs um we cover off all bases pretty like exclusively i'd say um exhaustively sorry and and then i'd say also um we just get on really well which when you're spending the amount of time together that we do is really important it, it's so we've had like a couple of guests on the podcast in the past uh, vcs typically but but you know the the, the kind of metric that they churn out is you know, uh, the, the a startup and investor relationship often lasts longer than than um, the average UK marriage, which is quite depressing to be <laughs> honest. But the co-founding relationship obviously is part of that, right? And I've I've been you know in businesses where that co-founding relationship has fallen apart. Um, you know, thankfully in in one instance, actually COVID was a was a kind of help rather than a hindrance to that because it, it just allowed everyone to say you know what let's just mm-hmm. let's just get on with it and do what needs to be done but equally i've seen it happen acrimoniously and you know the, the sort of fallout from that um i think what you say about you know aligned values and uh differentiated skill sets is is super important in fact when i was kind of researching both of you for this podcast and um, f- for the audience harry's actually a neighbor so i know probably more about <laughs> him than i should do um but um when I was researching both of you, I was like looking, I was like, okay, so Harry just felt like, you know, kind of pure startup guy product, always been in that sort of tech product um, uh, sort of uh, environment. And then obviously we played away, whereas you really did come from quite a uh, uh, a different pedigree, right? Like you, you as you said, you were working, um, you know, in, in, in uh, policy development and very much in that kind of food sector. Um, ha- like how it's often very difficult when you have uh someone who's highly uh uh should we say industry focused which 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 you were versus someone who's probably more on the commercial product tech side of things how how did you find that marriage like has that been it, 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 do you do you kind of act as a little bit of a uh a, 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 of a voice of reason maybe when there's some crazy <laughs> stuff going through Harry's head or does it, it. or actually or, or, or actually are you as crazy as each uh, other i, I think I think so. So I definitely don't subscribe necessarily to that that model that some of the early stage um, accelerators have. So like the entrepreneur entrepreneur first model mm-hmm. is very much like techie meets Tech commercial, commercial person. Yeah. Um, but I think that when I talk about complementary skills, what we really see working well is actually a, a pragmatist and an optimist. It's that kind of like. I think there's... A- Wait till you get a CFO and we become the realist. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then I'm really easygoing yeah. and open-minded. But yeah, I think like, look, you have to be able to disagree and we definitely do disagree, but we, that that's to be expected and we're mm. able to do that in a really productive and constructive way. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, like I, I think that I bring a lot of um, structure and clarity and kind of, I suppose, realism or pragmatism to what we talk about. So Harry will have these crazy ideas and sometimes they are pure genius and sometimes I need to tell him to stop. But I think that that's, that's what makes it work, yeah. right? Like, she, you've got to get the, the ideas from I'm, 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 I bring the scrappiness and, and let's just go. And, but that's so. super important, right? Because at early stage, again, you can get really distracted by, yeah, we've got like 30,000 different opportunities here. Mm. Let's go after all of them. Whereas actually what you what you often need and... Uh, and I certainly had this problem because I didn't have a co-founder uh, was like, actually, no, le- f- this one. <laughs> like, yeah. let's, let's do this really well until yeah. we figure out that it isn't this. And then, yes, we should experiment with other stuff, but we shouldn't dilute our attention so far that actually we're not delivering on any of the 
the kind of projects or, or product strategies that we have. Mm. Right? The other thing that's probably worth mentioning is our CTO, Pedro, yeah. who has joined us more recently. Um, but he obviously having three people is another dimension to that kind of decision making relationship around yeah. the tech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think quite often having that you you can then have a little bit more of a, yeah. a democracy as well when there's three of you um, to make decisions, which I think is another has been a, another really good kind of agents of decision making within our with our within our team. Yeah, no, look, I think I think it is important. And those first kind of hires, you know, whether it's your CTO, whether it's product, whatever, super important. Um, but also understanding, I guess, like you know, uh, who are the zero to one people, who are the one to many people. Like mm. at every stage, that kind of changes as well. Um, but, you know, let's talk about Martiz, right? Because on the face of it, you know, if you go on your website, et cetera, it looks like the initial product set isn't that different to the sort of vending machines you see in, in a number of offices and maybe the more advanced kind you see in Asia, like a lot of kind of Japanese storefronts seem to have this sort of tech. So what is different about Martiz and why do you think that now is the time for this solution to come to market? Yeah, well... We actually, that's kind of where we started. Yeah. We started building, let's say, an innovation on, on a vending machine, which was a smart fridge, a micro market, and, and basically an unattended retail model yeah. in different locations across Which um, is what Bodega did in the US, I guess, right? Yes, a similar model. There's a number of this farmer's fridge in, in, in yeah. the US, um, and um, there's a number of different players in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what a smart fridge is, is fridge with a big digital display on the front you can track the inventory inside um and people can come up select what they want tap your card open it and grab the stuff it works mm-hmm. fully on uh, unattended model mm-hmm. they're better than vending machines because you can grab more things so it's better um, average order value and they're just more intelligent of how they work um so we started with the view so so we're, so we're backed by founders factory mm-hmm. um a venture builder and a vc and nesta mm-hmm. um the uk government's arm for social change and innovation N- know them both very well um, yes and um <laughs> one of their main objectives nesta is to reduce obesity by half by 2030 um and where one startup was being backed as part of founders factory and nesta's joint mission studio mm. um and the goal initially was to scale a network of unattended retail stores in different locations sets in, 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 in initially London and then the UK. And presumably, based on that mission, to promote healthier eating. Make healthy food more accessible, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, we launched the first site in June, acquired a competitor and scaled to 10. Um, so we had this fast track growth, um, which has been amazing. Um, then we realized it's really hard to do fresh food. Um, especially do fresh food profitably in this this setup Um, and presumably in the current kind of market conditions where supply chains have become actually quite difficult to manage and we're seeing supermarket shelves without fresh produce right even today exactly you and i both know the waitrose down the road rarely has anything that you want in it and that's the balance between availability and waste right and 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 you want things you want stuff on the shelves so the consumers have what they want and it's brand reputation if you have too much then you're going to have a load of food waste, which mm. is obviously also bad. So we came to realize that. So we, we learned a problem firsthand and along, and that led us down to the path of, okay, how do we solve this? Um, and that's when we lent more into a, for a lot of research that we did, a forecasting tool mm-hmm. um, to predict the demand across our sites, to find that perfect balance between availability and waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tool is really developed and it's surpassing our expectations we've had about 81 percent reduction in food waste across our sites it's incredible and a 16 percent profit uplift mm-hmm. um and the goal is to advance that forecasting tool 
um, using machine learning and AI. Mm -hmm. um, and really now we want to allow not just us, but loads of different businesses, food businesses in the UK and globally eventually to use our tool to find that perfect um, balance between availability and waste. And, and I mean, Lucy, from your perspective, right? So given that this was, as you say, like a joint mission between Founders Factory and, mm. and Nesta and the initial mission to reduce obesity, how how does that then play in? Because again, like that's a slight pivot from, from that mission, right? Surely. Yeah, I think we're, you know, you can go about these things different ways. I think you can either deliver the the, the food, which is, you know, a really great way of achieving impact, but um, subject to a lot of scale. Yeah. Or you can take that kind of picks and shovels approach and actually recognize systemically there are barriers to delivering choice for consumers and that doesn't just mean healthy food but it means a choice that includes a spectrum of healthy products it may well include a choice of perishable products as well which are you know for many reasons harder to deliver so the way that we see it and the way that our investors also see it is is that actually um by enabling others to deliver a better food offering in essentially like small and more rationalized store settings that is unlocking a huge, huge capability change, far bigger than most retail businesses. It's kind of by stealth, right? If you try and attack, you know, we're, we're attacking obesity, often doesn't work because you've got to convince people that, you know, they need to change or trying to change behavioral habits targeted at a certain person. Whereas if you actually change overall uh, that flow of, of, of information and of food and so on and so forth, then actually the net result is that you you decrease uh, or you increase the availability of, of fresh food and, and healthy exactly. choices. And by nature, over time, that leads to healthier outcomes in the population. Right? Yeah, and that, that's really our theory of change. It's around making the, the delivery on the retail side of those products more viable. Mm. And that in time will create that environment which is more conducive to healthier choices. And obviously a huge amount of change needs to happen in society, but you know we can't cover everything. And actually that is a, a big a big chunk of that pie um yeah, yeah. and i think we're gonna look with by providing different businesses not just ourselves with the tools mm -hmm. and we're looking to wrap it into a b2b SaaS product um to be able to predict their stock and their inventory at scale to find that perfect um, balance between availability and waste we're gonna have a much bigger impact and be a much bigger commercial business than scaling a network of machines ourselves yeah but the the good thing is we've and probably and probably more capital efficient. That's a CFO. In BC. Exactly, yeah, hundred percent. There it's, is also a lot more scalable. <laughs> but and at the same time, like we're about seventy percent profitable already on our ten sites already. We hopefully by the end of Q one will be hundred percent profitable. Yeah, we're going to keep that going as a one as a cash cow for our business, but two as an agile testing lab yeah. to then develop this tool. As well as that, we've already got our first design partner and customer. Uh, Abocado has six um, high traffic stores across London as well. Um, so we're in a really good position to, to evolve this product and then allow everyone to use it. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to introduce you to our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Emerge One. Emerge One CFOs partner with VC-backed founders from C to Series B to manage and raise capital and plan how it should be deployed, controlling cash so that they can do what they do best to scale strategically. You can find them at emergeone.co.uk. That's E-M-E-R-G-E-O-N-E.co.uk. Okay, let's get back to the episode. 
yeah. and and you're in the middle of raising i think uh seed round at the moment is that right pre-seed round pre-seed yeah round. so raising pre-seed round um eight hundred thousand pounds um we're looking to raise um we opened it just before christmas mm. um so yeah and yeah, that's yeah, basically yeah. we're looking to grow our um technical arm so grow our data team and essentially just really nail this product um we've already done a great job of of kind of giving that proof of concept, testing that in our store network. And the store network really does provide an amazing testing ground for not only the proprietary data that it delivers on on actual real-time sales, but it allows us to test and learn a lot with the way that we execute things. And we've already learned a huge amount about the sort of novelties of working in a more rationalized store setting. I mean, I would I would imagine over time as that predictive analytic or as those predictive analytics improve and as the algorithm improves and probably becomes slightly more self-learning in any case, you could probably port that across to different uh, uh, to different verticals, right? Like, I mean, I, I imagine you wouldn't be essentially stuck, not that, not that grocery is a small category <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but you could probably uh, see it uh, moving across into different verticals. 100%. Right? Like, we're focused on building, solving this problem for one particular customer, yeah, right, um, in a niche focus first. Let's get that as a go-to-market, let's scale that, and then this can be applicable to loads of different types of food businesses. But, yeah, you know, we do. both come from the food, food sector yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, food systems research, and there, this is just such a cross-cutting problem. Um, and, you know, the technology is becoming available. You know, AI is being applied to just about everything right now, but this is a really great application of it. Um, Equally, I think that the the challenges for food businesses, for all anyone that deals with consumers are are changing because people are shopping and eating and living differently. So being able to kind of consolidate across channels and therefore to make better forecasts that take into account lots of variables is is really, really pertinent. Yeah, well, look, well, yeah. There's a number of different ways that we're. I'm not going to give away our trade secrets of how we do it, but <laughs> no, you uh, le- you leave that to someone posting on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, 100%, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. Our, our data science actually did that last night. I got to remove it. I was like, that's our, that's our IP. Um, but yeah, um, but yeah, we, we're essentially getting the transaction history and, and mapping it with different types of data, um, and that's really giving us a, a, a great output of, of, of what the future looks what, like. What it, I mean, what it strikes, I mean, like, again, it, it strikes me that it's such a timely, it's such a timely solution. And the reason I say that is pre-Christmas, I remember listening, I think I was listening to a politics podcast because I think that's the only podcast I can listen to <laughs> if I listen to anything else in tech, I kind of yeah. uh, might, might, might feel a bit guilty. But um, no, so, so one of the problems that a lot of supermarkets faced was they couldn't predict because the supply chain's, uh, and logistics processes had had basically extended out as a result of Brexit and, and and various other sort of you know supply chain issues caused by the kind of global conditions that we're in at the moment. You know they were having to book and order produce three months earlier than they would normally have done for the Christmas period, and that led to massive massive problems in how they could forecast or, or how they should be forecasting what they needed and and when they should be buying and so on and so forth. And it, and it strikes me that, you know, as you build up that data, and it may take a few years to build up sufficient enough data sets to start being able to generalize, but that then becomes such a massive tool for, um, you know, f- f- for stores to be able to actually stock the produce that they do need when they need it, not just the healthy, but like across their whole, mm. the, all, every mm. category that they have, right? Um, and especially in an environment where, you know, you've got supply chains that are breaking left, right and center. Definitely. 100% and like we're we're not the 
let's say the only startup that's approaching this is a company called Guac in America. They've just raised two million um, at the back of Y Combinator. They're applying a similar techniques, but to big grocery, whereas we're focusing on the smaller store. Yeah. Um, which we feel we have a hunch that it's a more exciting opportunity, um, and actually will be easier to do. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they probably they probably have a need, don't have the sophistication internally to be able to deal with a lot of this stuff as well, right? So, so actually being I able mean, to buy off the shelf makes life easier. Yeah, the the honestly, like the benefits of having a network in which to test that and and iterate with that and be able to control what the customer sees and monitor what is on shelf remotely is just you know it's it's fantastic. It just means we can build so quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the, the subtleties of the way that you would forecast in a, a more rationalized store setting are, you know, really quite relevant um, to, to what we're building. And it is just it's a different angle on on this big problem. Um, but I think it's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of opportunity to be had here. I think it's a massive, I said this before, but us owning our own network to be able to build this yeah. gives us such an advantage to be able to accelerate this growth yeah well you have proprietary data that you can you can learn and train on right like it it, it you aren't having to go pick up the you're not having to f find a half a dozen dozen customers that you can sell in on a pilot basis and tell them well you know we can't actually do anything at the moment because we don't have the data we need your data to be able to yeah. tell you what we need to do etc so you're, you're actually able to build the data set and the analytics before going out to commercial you know to commercial customers and going for that um so just changing tack a little bit right as someone that has been through and worked with accelerated some of their portfolio companies over the last eight years as i have i definitely have very mixed feelings about them um i, I i've been through founders factory myself um you know very close to a, a number of people in the team david hickson uh has been on the podcast before um i remember still uh back in 2015 as you know the first business in the first cohort in uh in founders factory uh sitting 10 foot away from brent hoveman and feeling quite excited um having just got off the boat from Papua new guinea um but i'd love to understand from your perspective what accelerators and incubators are actually good for right what should founders look out for when they're considering them what sort of founders should look to work with them right because again you know it often gets said you know you only really the only accelerator you ever really want to be with is ycom right but actually that's not necessarily true depending on the sort of nature of the business and what you're trying to achieve so yeah i'd love to get your perspectives yeah on, on that first of all love david and lizzie as well yeah. they're both big big shout outs to the yeah, founders factory yeah, team i think they've my experience from there has been incredible. I think coming from my last business where I'd put a chunk of my savings into it mm. um, and it'd been, look, it's a, startups are risky, right? You don't know where they're going to go. And for this one, I could build something without any risk to my personal savings, but then really be able to focus on what you want to do best, which is figuring it out and doing the research. And so you, you would have been part of the venture studio as opposed to, right? Yeah, right, venture right. studio. So, so, so we went in at the start, we got a, we got a budget to kick, to kick it off, um, essentially turn, turn an idea into, into mm. reality. Um, and I suppose that takes the pressure off of like having to, I suppose, generate revenue straight away. You can speak to loads of people, understand, okay, is this the right market to go after first and really like figure out where to go. At the same time, you can move fast. Like we launched our first site in June mm. pretty quickly and I started in March. So I think it was fantastic. And the support around you as well from product, um, data science, legal, 
um, accountancy, everything around that means that you don't have to, I suppose, pay over the odds to different people that different stage or orbit really scrappy. or do it yourself and you you yeah. can focus on building the business which is just like yeah it shouldn't yeah. be underestimated in those early 100%, 100%. days there's enough firefighting as it is um i'd say i mean aside from the obvious fact of the, the money which is just you know great um and their support i mean it, it really does depend on the kind of program that you embark on because like the the venture builder studio is fantastic in the sense that They've essentially found this factory and Nesta de-risked an idea. They've taken it through their own personal due diligence process and said, actually, this is an interesting idea. This is an interesting market. And then they've kind of de-risked the founders as well because um, they, they, you know, they bring in the founders into that environment. Mm. So you feel like your odds are quite good um, as an individual going into that setting, but they take a very small cohort. Um, so on the flip side, I mean, I have experience of being part of Zinc, which... Um, for those of you who don't know, is it a little bit entrepreneur first in the way that it's run? You they take in 60, 70 aspiring founders, pre-idea, pre-co-founder. And Always thematic as well, right? Like so. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so each cohort works on a specific theme: mental health, food, whatever. Yeah, and they're they're impact-led as well. So yeah. that that adds another dimension to it. Um, pros and cons, of, obviously, of both. Um, but yeah, in that environment, you're very much the things you get out of it are quite different because mm. you're not you're not given capital up front to invest in a business, you're giving us a, a stipend. Um, mm. And the idea is that within that time and that space, you find your idea, you find your co-founder. So it really depends on what the thesis of the the VC is. Um, but I, I think I, I got a huge amount of clarity from, from that process as well. Um, although very different to Founders Factory. The other thing I think you get by working with investors from day one who have seen so many early stage companies is, um, you know, they've seen it happen before. And as much as like, you've got to learn from making your own mistakes, like I, I don't want to reinvent the wheel if I don't need to. Um, and s- just having that, that you know, s- sort of voice in your ear that is, is truly on side because they have given you money already um, is, is fantastic. And yeah, I mean, I, I highly, highly rate the Founders Factory. Yeah, team. and the fact that we had Nesta as well. So mm. you've got two organizations that's helping you from the start, like yeah. Founders Factory from commercial side, mm. right, go and, turn this business into a unicorn right nesta from go make a massive impact on the world um and i look at them as like two angels or sometimes two devils on your shoulder <laughs> yeah. going like this and pulling you to either side i just think it's um it's second to none and like it, internally in nesta as well um got a shout out to alex gilbert she's been amazing from the start um and um yeah i think we've also got access to the behavioral insights team yeah that used to be oh, part amazing. of the cabinet office so that's been like hugely amazing to like get a business to where it is now um so yeah i think it's um for me i would do it again without yeah. heartbeat. And, and and presumably plate away didn't go through that process right like so. no that was me and my brother started it in the heart of lockdown <laughs> chucked our savings in um and um yeah grew it and like the first six months i was like okay i didn't even know anything about venture it was like we did like a million pound worth of revenue and then i'd like an advisor to us that was like a friend was like guys you should raise money and i was like how'd you do that you right. <laughs> so it was mad it was like that wasn't me i don't think no, no yeah. but i was we like didn't know i, each I other didn't, that well. didn't know you could do that and how yeah. you did that and then we went on that journey to build it so completely different experience kind of just figuring out how you do stuff on the but, way but so. it feels like that's a great kind of fit in the sense that you've you've gone through a founding journey yourself you've made mistakes you've learned you've done some amazing things you're able to bring that experience into the studio so you already know 
you know wh where are the pain points what happened but then you've got the additional support i guess from the from the founders factory team and the nesta team both on i guess the product on the impact as well as the commercial to be like okay well, well hold on do you, why do you really think you should be taking money at this valuation or you know from a data science perspective actually do you want to focus on this versus that you know what what are the right things to look at um and yeah it gives you i guess it gives you it, if nothing else it validates you can get that ongoing validation of your idea from a third party without yeah. sort of you know it gives you that living tool, in yeah. like head. i remember the first first two three months i was probably annoying the team at founder because i'm like oh, i need someone to speak to to check about like do you know what i mean like i was just you kind of because it was just me for the first two months i was inside your own head thinking is this the right thing is this the right thing yeah. and just an amazing soundboard yeah um mm. to build to who's because the head of the venture studio is uh I'm, I'm just i'm blanking on his name now although i i do know him but really good guy um but but i remember meeting that venture studio team and they were like going through uh, a ton of ideas at the time and just just the process that they were going through was like very very massive like so they were you know yaying or naying i guess on whether a, whether a product makes sense and then who would we get to run it and how would that work and so on and so forth so they and, and but the the thing is that's their job right like that's what they're doing 24 7 yeah. so they have insight into okay well who is the right founder f for this like what is the right founder for this sort of product look yeah. like what sort of background should they probably have come from etc et before what have money's chucked at it they've kind of they've validated yeah the product for a market with the right founder kind of fit yeah right which obviously as lucy said it kind of makes your odds a lot better yeah um and even when i was in there when i then had to look for a co-founder having that name founders factory in nesta yeah i was like this people. is legit like it's not just some random dude posting yeah, on LinkedIn. So, yeah. and i think that's everything teams everything at this early stage so oh, um, yeah so yeah I, I think it's fantastic okay so you're both advocates of accelerators that's good to know that's good yeah. to know um and and i guess like final question on on that um and and maybe just sort of playing off of that so so had it not have been uh uh founders factory nesta backed on linkedin do you think you'd have still applied um yeah, I think I would. I mean, at the point I was at. That, that's the right answer. I mean, you see a lot yeah. of random things on LinkedIn, right? It's not yeah, not yeah, because yeah. of the venture. Of course not. But I, would I have taken it seriously, I suppose, is the question. And I think I would because of the point that I was at and the, the kind of clarity that I had um, at that point and because of the, the fit of the, the concept. But certainly, I mean, we've hired a fantastic team, again, because you do, you, there's a lot of rubbish to sift through online and yeah. I think it stood out to me because of that, but um, no, I'm, I think Harry and I were destined to find each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, listen, uh, Harry, Lucy, it's been absolutely incredible having you here on the podcast with me. Uh, for our listeners, uh, where's the best place for them to find you online? You're on LinkedIn, clearly. Uh, uh, Twitter, where, where can they find you? And where can yeah, they learn LinkedIn, more about Martise? I'm, I'm don't use Twitter. I look at Twitter, but I don't use it. Marty.co.uk. Yeah. Um, Marty.co.uk yeah. and Harry Slagle on, on Twitter. And Lucy Adams um, on LinkedIn. I don't use Twitter either. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> apparently it's called X. I haven't, yeah. I have, yeah, sorry, haven't, quite, sorry. haven't quite made the <laughs> move haven't myself. Checked, haven't looked. Yeah, <laughs> have, haven't made the move myself. But look, thank you so much for joining the studio today. It's been an absolute blast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having cool. us. Thank you. Really enjoyed it.